seated. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, we are obviously continuing in our series through this wonderful book of Psalms, and last week I shared why I sing, and shared with you last week two reasons why I sing, and why I think it's important not only for me to sing, but I hope also important for all of us to sing, and why we collectively sing as followers of Jesus. Well, I like that so much that I thought I would share part two with you this morning of why I sing. And um, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 65 here this morning, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to that, that'd be great. But I hope that as we go through this passage this morning, and as we look at some additional reasons about why we sing, above everything else, my hope is this, my hope is this, is that we would gain a greater vision, a greater vision as to what happens when we collectively come together as God's people to sing. Let me just say this, rarely in scripture do we not have a picture of heaven that isn't involving some sort of praise and worship to the one who sits on the throne. If you look throughout the whole of Scripture, almost, not every incident, but almost every incident where where heaven is shown, where there is a picture of the afterlife, where there is a picture of what is going to be like when we are no longer here on this earth, at least in its present form, that almost always that vision is of those who are kneeling, bowing, face-planting, if you will, before the one who reigns over all. And so my hope is that above every other reason that may be shared here last week and shared here today, that we do not lose sight of the fact that that vision is happening right now. In other words, whether or not you and I have realized it, and, and obviously we only live in the realm we live in, We're not always aware of those things that we don't see, and we oftentimes may not even really think about those things that we don't see, but they're there, right? There is a world, a spiritual dimension that exists that we don't always see physically, but we still feel its impact even right now. Absolutely feel its impact, whether or not we realize it, that we could call it spiritual warfare, we can call it whatever it is that we want to call it, but nonetheless, there are things that are happening beyond our necessary knowledge of, that absolutely have impact on us right here, right now. And so with that in mind, what we have done here this morning is we have joined with the angels. We have joined with the heavenly beings. We have joined with Christians around the world in praising the one who sits on the throne. And in doing so, we have given ourselves, whether we realize it or not, a little taste of what it's going to be like with God in full, in his presence, with no sin, no tears, no, no absolute pain, nothing like that. When we are in his presence fully, we are now having a little taste of that today. Let me say this by Charles Spurgeon. I think he really paints a really good picture of this. Praise, he says, is the rehearsal of our eternal song. By grace, we learn to sing. And in glory, we continue to sing. What will some of you do when you get to heaven if you go on grumbling all the way? Can you imagine that? (laughs) You're going to heaven and you're grumbling about it. 
Really? I got to go there? Really? I got to do that? Really? I got to be here? All that kind of stuff. Do not hope to get to heaven in that style, he, he writes. But now begin to bless the name of the Lord. In other words, what we do here every Sunday is in many ways practice for what we will be doing forever in his glory. Forever in his glory. So let me just tell you this, church. Get used to singing. Get used to praising. Get used to it. Because it's going to be a really important part, not the only part, but a really important part, I believe, of what we will be doing forever in God's glory. And by the way, my belief is we will do that willingly. We will do that happily. We will do that with such great joy that we will not have to be forced to sing. We will just want to sing. I don't know about you, but I can't fathom truly what it will be like to be in God's presence fully. In some ways, if I'm honest, it scares me. It scares me to be in God's presence. I've shared this before. Nearly every person in the Old Testament who encountered an angel, which was the same for them as encountering God himself, believed that they were going to die as a result of it. And yet, we will be able to be in God's presence fully and not die, but actually be fully alive. That's a beautiful future, church. Amen. Today, next Sunday, the Sunday after that, and the Sunday after that, and the Sunday after that is just rehearsal for what will be real. Amen? Amen. All right. With that in mind, with that vision, I want us to go to Psalm 65. And I want us to dive in. I want to share again with you, as I shared last week, two reasons. I want to share with you two additional reasons about why I sing. And we're going to be in this psalm, and it is a beautiful praise psalm this morning. And there are two reasons that I sing, that I see in this psalm as reasons as to why I sing. And the first reason is this. I sing because God saved me from my sin. I sing because God saved me from my sin. Let's go to Psalm 65, begin with verse 1. It says this, David writes, and by the way, the title of this psalm, at least in my Bible, is this, for the music director, a psalm of David, a song. It's meant to be sung, okay? And it's for the music director to lead others in singing it, okay? Here's what he writes, praise awaits you, O God, in Zion. Vows made to you are fulfilled. Now let me stop right there. I want to just get a little nerdy with you this morning, okay? Bear with me. I paid a lot of money to get nerdy, and it would be wasteful if I didn't get nerdy with you at least at some point, okay? <sighs> verse 1 of this is a rather tricky verse. Some of your translations may actually, if you're reading from one, other than the screen behind me, um, might say something like, silence is praise. Might say something like that. Yeah, What's going on here? Because this is clearly not what this version is saying. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion. Vows made to you are fulfilled. This is a classical trouble with trying to interpret Hebrew, a Semitic language, a language, by the way, that is read from right to left, not left to right. A Semitic language, by the way, that until uh, several couple thousand years ago didn't even have vowels in the words, that they had to be added in later. It can be hard to figure out what in the world does this word mean. 
Now, if you want to ever get so nerdy and dive deep and watch a YouTube video, if you've got nothing else going on, and you want to watch, I have, by the way, so this is, I, I, I had nothing else going on. Um, <laughs> I watched a YouTube video of a translation team kind of going over uh, a passage in Scripture for um, trying to figure out what this word, and it was just one specific word. They spent hours trying to figure out what that word meant. Hours. I didn't have a lot going on, but I certainly wasn't going to spend hours watching that. I got a taste of it, and I'm like, I am so grateful there are men and women who are so knowledgeable in the languages that they are able and love to go in depth about what these words mean. I never was great at languages, ever. I remember Spanish was the only grade I ever failed. I got an F in Spanish in eighth grade. But do you know what the teacher said to me? You've got great pronunciation, Dan. And then I go to seminary. Oh, no, 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 no. I go to college, and you gotta, take a, you gotta take a language, right? So I thought, why not? I'm gonna take Greek and the New Testament as my language. <laughs> I'd have three books open. The way that you learned Greek in, in that time, at least for me, you had to have three books open. It was like the, the inductive method of learning Greek. It was awful. And I set the bar so high that afterwards the professor said there will never be another person in this class who hasn't had prior Greek experience in high school or are a seminary person. They never would allow anyone. I set the bar high. That was it. They wouldn't allow anyone because I was, it was hard. I, I mean, it was hard. Hebrew was even harder. I had three, I had three quarters of Hebrew. Hebrew one, two, and three. It was, it was so, so hard. And I remember again for Hebrew 3, the professor at the seminary I went to, he said, Dan, you've got great pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> Hint. I remember I took Greek 1 and 2 for a summer intensive, three weeks, 8 to 5, of just straight Greek, Monday through Friday. The professor, we had open book tests. And the tests would last three to four hours long each time. And he would write his address on the whiteboard. He'd say, when you're done, come on over to my house and I'll feed you lunch. And then he would leave. And he would leave us to do the test. Open book, three to four hours. I am not a linguist. I don't desire to be. I am grateful for those who are. And that is wonderful. That being said, church, let me just share with you this verse here. What is going on with that word? That word, is it silence? Is it a weight? That particular word, there is uncertainty. Or there is belief that, in many times, that Hebrew word for silence or a weight is oftentimes translated into a preposition. And so, therefore, you get a weight. Or it is simply silence. Here is probably the point as to what maybe it may be saying is context is everything. And in the context of this psalm, it makes sense to me of what this verse says. Praise awaits you, O God, in Zion. Vows made to you are fulfilled. Okay? Because of what we're going to read next. Now, let me say one word about that word praise right at the beginning there. There are seven words in the Hebrew language that describe praise. The one used here is the most common one. It's used 96 times throughout the Old Testament. That word is halal. Okay? Halal. It's where we get our word hallelujah from, okay? And that word, that praise word here, literally means to praise, to boast, to make a boast, 
to be praised, to be made praiseworthy, to be commended, to, to be worthy of praise, to, to glory, to make one's boast. Um, but here is also, and this is the fun one for me, of what this word means. Get ready for this, all right? This word also means this, to make a fool of, to make into a fool, to act madly, to act like a madman. Think of David dancing before the ark, making a fool of himself and his wife looking at him with scorn. David was halaling. David was praising. He didn't care how he looked. He didn't care if he was out of tune singing. He was so grateful. He was going to praise God for the fact that he was back in Jerusalem. The ark had been returned. God is now with us. Let me tell you this, church. If you ever self-conscious about the fact that you think that you are out of tune, and you may be, all right? If you ever think you have no rhythm, you may be. You may not have any rhythm. I don't care. Sing. Sing. If you're out of tune, sing. If you can't move or keep a, ba a beat or you can't even clap on the right beat or whatever else, clap. It's okay. No judgment here, all right? There may be people who will cover their ears, I don't know, close their eyes, whatever, but don't worry about them. You're not there for them. It's okay to make a fool of ourselves when we are praising Jesus. It's okay. There is no judgment. There is no judgment when it comes to our praise of Jesus. And David knew a thing or two. If the king of Israel is willing to dance in his undergarment before the ark, we should not be afraid to praise regardless. Amen? Amen? Now, let's get to the meat. That was just the first introductory part. Welcome to my world. Here it goes on, and he says this. Here is why I think this is the best translation. Praise awaits you, O God, in Zion, because here it is. David writes, You hear prayers, all people approach you. Our record of sins overwhelms me, but you forgive our acts of rebellion. How blessed is the one to whom you choose and allow to live in your palace courts. May we be satisfied with the good things of your house, your holy palace. You answer our prayers by performing awesome acts of deliverance, O God, our Savior. All the ends of the earth trust in you as well as those living across the wide seas. In other words, praise awaits you, God, because guess what? Our sin was so heavy... Our sin was too much for us to bear. And David here is so interesting. He not only is sharing the fact that the weight of sin is too much, but he also does this. David admits that he and his people have sinned. And instead of living under the weight of that sin, instead of trying to deal with that sin on their own, trying to make right what has been wronged, all that kind of stuff. And by the way, there's speculation as to what maybe have happened here. But perhaps, and we don't know for sure, that they were invaded by the Assyrians for some sin that they may have caused, and now they were able to, to, to once again get the Assyrians out because of the fact they confessed their sin. Could be, we don't know for sure, but nonetheless, David does the only thing that can truly deal with sin. And this is the only thing that, honestly, we can do in dealing with our own sin. He turns to God, and he confesses it. He turns to God, and he confesses it. That is the 
best first step any of us can do when we have done wrong is to turn to God and confess it. Instead of trying to put it off, instead of trying to hide it, instead of trying to fix it on our own, which is oftentimes doesn't work out that well, the first thing that we can do, the first thing that I think is wonderful to do, necessary to do, is turn to God and confess it. Let's be honest, church. I don't think I'm going to share anything new when I say this. We have a sin problem. Not only that, but in many ways, we are known as sinners, as sinners by the sin we commit, right? We, we oftentimes categorize people by the sins they may commit. Oh, that person's a murderer. That person's a liar. That person is a cheater. That person is an adulterer. That person is fill in the blank of your own thing, a robber or whatever else. But here's the thing. As someone once shared, and I think this was pretty interesting, to err is human, but it feels so divine. There is, we are so good at sinning, we can even turn it into a divine and believe that it's a divine act, and it's not. It's not. I came across a quote just to show what I mean by this from Martin Luther. Martin Luther is just a phenomenal character to me. It is just proof that God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Okay? Martin Luther did a lot of great things for the church, but he also had a lot of weird things, and he wasn't exactly what you might call the perfect person. None of us are. And certainly Martin Luther wasn't. And here's whatever, you know, he, he kind of makes some interesting arguments that I don't necessarily agree with. And perhaps he was kidding here, but let me show you a quote of what I mean by how we maybe can take sin is, is, and we understand that that is what it is to be human, but it feels so divine and maybe we can justify our sin. Here's what Martin Luther shared at one point. He says this as an argument. Whoever drinks beer, he is quick to sleep. Whoever sleeps long does not sin. Whoever does not sin enters heaven. Thus, let us drink beer. <laughs> now, as a German whose brethren, ah, if I ever needed justification to drink beer, I got it. But come on, let's be honest. It's a little messed up, right? Justification to drink more beer because beer makes us sleepy. And when we sleep, we do not sin, which is not true. So therefore, we should drink more beer so we can sleep longer. Right? So we can get into heaven. That is just, that is just backward thinking, isn't it? And yet, I think it's so true of us as humans in our thinking about how we can, at times, justify the sin that we have committed or are getting ready to commit in our own minds, that we kind of all of a sudden go along and we justify why we are doing what we are doing. Whether or not we might think to ourselves, I deserve this. I have been good enough. I get to have a little fun. Whatever else we want to say. Or this person wronged me, therefore I'm going to wrong them. Or whatever else that we can justify in our mind. We love to be able to in any way to say that the sin we are committing isn't actually sin it's okay, and in fact, it may be even God-honoring. That's the worst kind of justification. Jesus said it himself with his disciples. He said, guess what? There are people who are going to absolutely condemn you. There are people who are going to absolutely come against you. There are people who are going to do hurtful, unbelievable 
terrible things to you because you are my followers. And by the way, a lot of these people will believe that they are doing this in God's name and because God told them to do it. We have a sin problem, church. We have a sin problem. And here's the thing, is that I sing because it's a reminder of the fact that I have sin in my life and the fact that God has now forgiven me of that sin. I sing because even though I am a sinner, I am not defined by that sin. Even though I have committed this act, even though I have done this thing, even though I have thought these thoughts, even though I have this sinful attitude, at the end of the day, it is not that which defines me, it is what God has done and who he says I am that defines me. And I sing as a reminder, as once again an affirmation of the fact that I have been saved from my sin. So let me rework Martin Luther's argument. Go with me on this, church. It was rather fresh and raw, so it's not finalized, okay? No judgments. No judgments. Here's my version. Whoever sings is quick to praise, and whoever praises long does not sin, and whoever does not sin enters heaven. Thus, let us sing praise. Yeah. Just a reworking, that's all it is. That's why I sing, church. Every single one of us, I believe, has walked into this place this morning, and whether or not you have realized that God has already forgiven your sins and my sins. Everyone is already forgiven. Everyone. Even if you don't know Jesus, everyone is forgiven. The cross that Jesus died on, the act in which he voluntarily went to cover our sins, to allow for the process of reconciliation and restoration and redemption, all of a sudden has happened already. And the first thing has already been granted to us. Every single person on this planet, whether they know it or not, have already been forgiven. It's just a matter of, do we accept that gift? Do we accept that gift of forgiveness? If we don't, that's our choice. If we do, huh, that's our choice, and it's a good one in my opinion. The Apostle Paul kind of expresses this dynamic and this truth when he writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. He says this, Therefore, consider carefully how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, taking advantage of every opportunity because the days are evil. Are the days evil? The days are evil, church. The days are evil. And by the way, perhaps the best way to deal with the evilness that we find in our days today, whether it's in our society, whether it's in our world, whether it's in our politics, whatever it is that you might find or determine to say that is evil, the best response to evil here is not what you think it is. Listen to what Paul writes. He says this, For this reason, do not be foolish, but be wise by understanding the Lord, what the Lord's will is. And do not get drunk with wine. Sorry, Martin Luther. <laughs> Which is the bockery, but be filled by the Spirit. And here's how we can do this. Here's how we can determine God's will. Here's how we can live in the midst of the evil that we oftentimes see and confront. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is how we deal with evil today, church. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? That's how we deal with evil. It is not the way that we think the world deals with evil, and therefore how we should deal with evil. We are, we are in this world, but we are not of this world. Two very important distinctions. How we deal with evil is we determine what God's will is, and a great way of determining God's will is to sing hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs and giving thanks to God. Yes, God, there is evil in this world. And yes, I'm in this world. And yes, I am a sinner. But I am not defined by it. You have saved me from my sin. And I will sing. You have saved me from my sin. And I will sing. David sings because of because sin, his sin, and the sin of his people is defeated, forgiven, and atoned for, or covered by God. And that is exactly why I sing, and why I believe we too should all sing. Now, that's the first reason. Here's the second one. The second reason about why I sing is this. God has blessed me with life. God has blessed me with life. Listen to what David writes here, in verses 6 through 13, the end of this psalm, he says this, You created the mountains by your power and demonstrated your strength. You calmed the raging seas and their roaring waves, as well as the commotion made by the nations. Even those living in the remotest areas are awestruck by your acts. You caused those living in the east and west to praise you. Here is a really fascinating theological concept. A question that I want to pose to you this morning. Is it possible for someone who has never encountered the scriptures, who has never possibly even encountered a church or even encountered a Christian, is it possible for that person to come to know who God is? Why? His creation cries out. His creation says, this is who I am. Even Paul, and it's called a theological term called general revelation. General revelation. It is a revelation that is open to everyone as opposed to special or specific revelation, which is scripture, church, Christian, that sort of thing. General, every person can even have a hint of who God is by simply looking up, looking around, seeing the creation around them. And David seems to give credence to that concept when he writes even those living in the remotest areas are awestruck by your acts think about that there is nowhere where god is not present on this in this world nowhere he is everywhere and his creation is a testimony to it and here's an important thing about how he has blessed me with life the first one that he's blessed me with life is that he has made his presence known he is here He's not only here, here, he's everywhere. He is here, church. If you have ever doubted whether or not, God, are you still here? Are you still in this world? Are you still even with us? Let us never doubt the fact that he still is. He is here, church. He has not left us yet. 
He is absolutely present. Not only can we see that in nature, but here's another way we can see it in church. And this is a shameless plug. Shameless plug, and I am not ashamed. Church is another powerful way that we can be reminded that God is still here. I love what the theologian N.T. Wright writes when he talks about this. He says this, As a newborn baby breathes and cries, so the signs of life in a newborn Christian are faith and repentance, inhaling the love of God and exhaling an initial cry of distress. And at that point, what God provides, exactly as for a newborn infant, is the comfort, protection, and nurturing promise of a mother. If God is our father, the church is our mother. The words are those of the Swiss reformer John Calvin. It is as impossible, unnecessary, and undesirable to be a Christian all by yourself as it is to be a newborn baby all by yourself. I don't know about you. The church, the local church, the church in general, has at times been a place that has not been always safe for, for many. It has been a, a cause of hurt and distress for many. It has even been the cause of many for people to leave the faith when it has done incredibly destructive things. Incredibly destructive things. And yet, it is still the bride of Christ. And yet, as Christians, I don't think we can truly experience the life that God has given us absent the church and being involved in a community of believers and growing together and sharing life together and praising God together. I just don't know of another substitute other than that than the church. And let me even be more specific, and I've thought this in my mind, I'm not, so a thought is not going to do. Can I just make that clear? Sometimes I, I misunderstand my position, and I think I'm just saying stuff because I just like to say it, and other people take it as law. Even some of you have, right? Not really, but nonetheless. I know where I stand with all of you, not very high. This is about as high as I get on this platform. I have even thought and toyed with the idea, maybe we should just cut out the live stream. Because I, I get it. Sometimes you can't be here. Live stream is great. That's why we're not going to do it. I know, Dennis is just like, I'm out of a job. <laughs> not true, not true. Uh, but I, I cannot emphasize enough the physical presence of one another, being together, praising, worshiping, doing life together, sharing with each other, praying for one another, that it is just so important to be reminded that I hope that when we walk out of this place this morning, that one of the things among many that we may say, but perhaps the best thing that we could say is, God was here, and I got to be with God. And that is so good. And that is so important. And I can't wait to do it all over again next Sunday. Can't wait to do it all over again next Sunday. There is something, church, about being together, like physically together. It's like God knew when he designed the church that he knew what he was doing. 
that there is something unique about us being together physically in each other's presence that is in many ways kind of a reminder collectively that we are in God's presence, that God is here with us. Do you believe that? My grandmother, whether or not, um, I, I don't know, my grandmother, just a phenomenal woman, perhaps the most influential woman in my life. She was Catholic. I forgive her. No. <laughs> she, was, she was a wonderful, devout Catholic. One of the few women I ever knew that, that converted from Southern Baptist to Catholic. She was devout. But she always believed, if she didn't go to church on Sunday, her week was just awful for her. Her attitude, everything. she admitted this. She said, I, I just have to go to church. Be in the presence of God. Amen, Grandma. I learned so much about my faith from her. It was a beautiful thing. But one of the things she taught me, whether she realized it or not, and she probably didn't, was the importance of being in a collective community of people, praising and worshiping God together, that we call church that God is here, that God is present, that he is with us as we are with one another. That's one. And I think David writes that so beautifully that we're reminded God is present. Here's the other thing that he has blessed me with life, not only in his presence, but with his provision. And, Paul, and David writes the following, he says this, you visit the earth in verse nine and give it rain. You make it rich and fertile. God's streams are full of water. You provide grain for the people of the earth, for you have prepared the earth in this way. You saturate its furrows and soak its plowed ground with rain showers. You soften its soil and make its crops grow. You crown the year with your good blessings and you leave abundance in your wake. The pastures in the wilderness glisten with moisture, and the hills are clothed with joy. The meadows are clothed with sheep, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout joyfully. Yes, they even sing. Do you know what that is saying, church? For an agrarian society of which David was king of, and Israel you know, excelled in being people who worked the land, who were farmers and took care of sheep, and all sorts of animals. What the, David is declaring is that at the end of the day, God, you are the one who makes it rain. God, at the end of the day, you are the one who makes the grass grow and the crops grow. At the end of the day, you are the, ones who you are the one who created the sheep and the livestock and everything. At the end of the day, God, you are the one who provides, not me. What I love about this is David is so practical. Do you ever, at the end of a day, just for a brief moment, ever think, God, thank you that today I had enough food to eat. Thank you, God, that I have a place to lay my head. Because, Jesus, you didn't. You were, for all intents and purposes, homeless. God, that I have clothes to wear that I have a TV to watch, that I have all this sort of things. 
I don't know about you, but it's tempting from my perspective to say, man, look at all of this stuff I worked for. There, there's, you know, it's okay to at least acknowledge, yeah, some of this stuff, yeah, we work. You don't work, you don't eat, right, kind of thing. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it is God who provided it all. I had a hand in it, but God had much bigger, 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 bigger hand in this. God did it. God did it. I can't make it rain. I can't make the sun shine. I can't make crops grow. I can't make the soil fertile. I cannot do any of those things. But what I can do is work the land. What I can do is work in the way that God has provided for me. Even today, church, we are blessed. We are blessed with life, with God's presence and his provision. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says this, Paul writes, And God is able to make all grace overflow to you, so that because you have enough of everything in every way at all times, you will overflow in every good work. What God has given is more important than what I can ever give in return. Except for maybe, and I say this maybe for one thing, singing praises to him. Singing praises to him. I sing because God has blessed me with such a beautiful life. So those are the two reasons. Those are why I sing and why I believe that we as a church should sing. Now, let me just share with you a little behind the curtain. Every week, as pastors and staff, we meet and we evaluate the worship service and we plan for the next three worship services. In fact, the sermon series is decided a year in advance. We already have the sermon series planned and all that kind of stuff. And you might think, my word, Dan, do you have room for the Holy Spirit? (laughs) Yes, all the time, all the time, right? But let me tell you how we plan worship, or a typical worship service. If you've ever noticed, and maybe you will notice now after I say this, at least half the worship service is dedicated to just singing. Half. That's intentional. We're not just filling space. We're not just filling space because if we didn't fill that space, you would have me up here a lot longer. Right? That's not why we do it. We do it because we truly believe that singing is essential. It is absolutely essential in our worship of God. In our acknowledgement of who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives, and what he is doing in our world. We do this, church, because singing is so important. And so we're going to sing one more song now. And as we do, I I pray and I hope that the reason why we're singing it, maybe even today, is because God has saved not only me, but he has saved you. Not only has he blessed me with a beautiful life, but he has blessed you also with a beautiful life. A life maybe you, at times, 
have looked back and think, even though it hasn't been perfect, even though it has been hard, even though it hasn't always worked out the way I thought it would work out, I am still here, and God is still taking care of me. I hope we can sing in that spirit and in that attitude this morning. Because church, we need to sing. We need to sing. So let's do that right now. Let's do that right. I'm going to invite the rest of the worship team to come up. They're waiting. 